Next, this month's special series focus on neurology and psychiatry. Throughout this month, ReachMD welcomes an array of experts to explore developments in neuroscience and mental health. Placebos are a surprisingly common prescription, according to several studies that point out that almost half of American physicians have prescribed placebos to their patients. This raises many ethical and scientific questions about the use of placebos in clinical practice. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is Dr. David Spiegel. Dr. Spiegel is Associate Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Spiegel has extensively studied how psychological factors affect the brain's response to pain and illness. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. I'm glad to be here. How did placebos get started, Dr. Spiegel? Well, there's a very old tradition. The word placebo is Latin for I will please which is not a bad cue for how doctors can help in medical care. And I think they come from sort of fundamental understanding of how we respond to stress, and that is that stress, particularly medical stress, makes us feel helpless. Something's happening to your body, you don't like it, you don't know what to do. And it pleases a patient when the doctor says, okay, here's something we can do about it. Now, what we like even better in modern medicine, of course, is to have something very specific and effective to do about it, using monoclonal antibodies to block tumor blood vessel growth and prevent metastases, or giving antibiotics to kill bacteria, or antivirals to kill viruses. So certainly, when you can combine doing something with a specific pharmacological or surgical effect, that's much better, but there's something about just the act of doing something that can be therapeutic as well. Tell us about some of your research related to placebos. Well, we've been studying for many decades now how the brain can affect the body, and it's clear that we have more ability to affect the body than we used to think. We did one study, for example, in which using hypnosis, which is just a form of highly focused attention like getting so caught up in a good movie that you think you're in the imagined world of the movie rather than in the theater watching the movie, we were able to reversibly change gastric acid secretion, either increasing it or decreasing it. And we had an NG tube down. And we had these people imagine, in one case, that they were relaxing and doing anything except eating. And we had a significant 40% reduction in gastric acid secretion. We even then injected them with pentagastrin, which stimulates maximal parietal cell output, and had them relax. And they still had a significant 19% reduction in the hypnosis condition. Then we went the other way. We said, eat an imaginary meal. And we were taking gastronomic tours of the Bay Area because we were NPO, and I was getting very hungry listening to dinners at Chez Panisse that these people were imagining. And one woman said after about 30 minutes of this one-hour protocol, let's stop, I'm full. Now, this is only eating imaginary meals. And there was an 89% increase in gastric acid secretion. So the brain has a good deal of ability to regulate what the body is doing more than we like to think. It doesn't mean you can do anything. It doesn't mean you can wish away cancer. But it does mean that you can control to a greater extent than you might think the way the body reacts. And another example with hypnosis is, is pain control. Hypnosis is a remarkably effective analgesic. In fact, 
a Scottish surgeon named Esdale in the 19th century was doing amputations in India, used hypnosis as a sole anesthesia, reported 80% surgical anesthesia. He was immediately fired from the hospital he was affiliated with. And a few years later at Mass General, they did the first ether operation, and the surgeon strode to the front of the amphitheater and announced, gentlemen, this is no humbug to distinguish what they did with ether from what Esdale had done with hypnosis. They reported 90% surgical anesthesia, so he withdrew the findings saying, well, they're doing 10% better than I am. And it's taken us 150 years to rediscover that the brain has something to do with pain perception, and you can remarkably control pain and other symptoms with techniques like hypnosis and with techniques like placebo. Now, you mentioned cancer. What work has been done looking at possible group placebo or group support on the progression of cancer? Well, this has been a surprising and very interesting area. We started studying this in the late 1970s, and we convened a support group of women who were dying of advanced breast cancer with the idea simply of seeing whether we could improve their lives, whether maybe when you face the ultimate you know, you look down the precipice at death, you might find it a period of growth rather than decline. And we found that that was true, that these women helped one another a great deal. In a randomized study, we showed that they were less anxious and depressed and had half the pain that control patients did with just the emotional support and teaching themselves hypnosis. About 10 years later, because I was so irritated by all the wish-away-your-cancer stuff that was going on, teaching patients to image white cells killing cancer cells, I got death records for all these women. And much to my surprise, there was an 18-month difference in survival that affected the treatment group. They lived that much longer than controls, a statistically significant effect of group intervention on survival. Now, since then, there have been four or five other studies of this effect, Four of them showed no effect, but just two weeks ago in cancer, Barbara Anderson at Ohio State published a randomized trial, 227 women. Those randomized to group therapy lived significantly longer and had significantly fewer relapses than control patients. So it is at least possible that mobilizing support, dealing with the stress of the cancer, managing symptoms like pain can not only improve quality of life, but potentially quantity of life with cancer as well. We're hearing a lot in psychiatry these days about antidepressants and the lack of efficacy, especially with the newer ones. What part does placebo play in all of that? Well, you know, the placebo effect haunts the pharmaceutical industry because patients have this nasty habit of getting better with sugar pills. And the interesting thing is that we used to think about antidepressants that for people with serious depression, the older tricyclics and the newer serotonin reuptake inhibitors and combined serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors would affect about two-thirds of patients, about 60%. It's looking like a specific pharmacologic effect now is more like 30%. And what seems to have happened is that the drugs are doing about the same, but the placebos are getting better. And in part, it may be because People have respect for antidepressants, as do physicians. They prescribe them with conviction, as I do. And patients are more and more convinced that they're going to get better when they take one. And that can be true for the antidepressant, but a big chunk of that response can actually be a placebo response. And so it's turning out that while some people still respond specifically to the pharmacologic aspects of these antidepressants, the newer trials, like the STAR-D trial, are showing a more modest effect 
for the pharmacologic component and a bigger effect for the placebo component, which can affect from 50 to 60% of patients in these recent trials. 50 to 60%. Yeah. Now, if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Spiegel, the Wilson Professor in Stanford School of Medicine. We are discussing the power of placebos. Now, David, how about neuroimaging? Do these studies have anything to teach us about placebos and their effects? They do. There have been a number of very intriguing studies. John Carzubieta at Michigan has done some beautiful studies showing there are parts of the brain that directly respond to placebo. This can include the frontal cortex, which in general inhibits response. So it's the part that makes us stop, look, and listen in response to emotional activation from the limbic system or somatic activation via the insula somatosensory cortex, and it can inhibit it. And he's actually shown that placebo response elicits an inhibitory effect in the frontal cortex that actually inhibits function in the periaqueductal gray down in the brainstem, which is one of the primary pain processing centers. So we now understand something about how the brain enacts placebo analgesia. There's also been an intriguing series of studies by Pierre Rainville and his colleagues at the University of Montreal showing that when you hypnotize people for pain control, you can get analgesia that's clinically significant. And if you just change what you say, you change the part of the brain that responds. So if you put their hand in circulating ice water or administer shocks and tell them your hand is becoming cool and numb, it's filtering the hurt out of the pain, you get analgesia through reduced activity in somatosensory cortex. If you do the same thing, but you just say, well, the pain is still there, but it won't bother you, you also get analgesia, but now it's the anterior cingulate cortex, which is involved in signal detection, focusing of attention, and mediating limbic frontal interaction. Then you get a reduction in activity in the anterior cingulate cortex, and people will similarly say, I feel less pain, or the pain's there, but it doesn't bother me, the kind of report you get for people on opiates, for example. So literally, the words we say change the part of the brain in which you get the analgesia. Now, when many of us think of placebo, we think of actual sugar pills. Does the price or the color of the pill influence the patient's response? Yes, there is a recent article that reported that people who were told that the pill they were taking was 10 times more expensive actually got more of a placebo effect than people who took the same sugar pill and were told that it was very cheap. So one of the ways in which we evaluate the likelihood of a placebo response is expectation based on money, and we tend to think that more expensive things are better. That's often not the case, but we think that way. So maybe that's why my patients like the brand name over the generics? (laughs) That's exactly right, and pharma trades on that one big time. Pharma's direct marketing to consumers now can have some positive placebo effects, but it can also be very expensive and not that much more effective. Now, what do you think about giving children a placebo pill? I understand there's a company now that sells a cherry-flavored tablet called Obacalp, which is placebo backwards. Right. Actually, that's an old tradition in medicine that docs would write that to the pharmacist, and the pharmacist knew what was going on. Well, I'm a little more troubled about it with kids because of the sort of educational piece there. Placebos can work well with children, but so can self-hypnosis. We did a study putting 
children through uh, avoiding cystic urethrogram in which they have to be conscious but catheterized and have contrast instilled into their bladder to see if they have reflux of urine into the kidneys. And teaching them and the parents to work with them doing self-hypnosis, we were able to shorten the procedure time by 17 minutes and reduce the amount of crying and stress. Children are more hypnotizable than adults. They use their imaginations much more. That can be a therapeutic advantage. And placebos can work. But what I worry about with kids is teaching them to always reach for a pill whenever they have a problem. And so I'm a little more worried about the use of placebo among children than I am among adults because you may be sort of entraining them lifelong to go for the pill first when something else might work as well or better. So thinking of other placebo-like options such as self-hypnosis. That's correct. Relaxation strategies, that sort of thing. Right. And, you know, one of the jokes about hypnosis is people think, well, you're taking control from people. In fact, you're teaching them how to better regulate and manage their own bodies. And that can be a good lifelong lesson, too. So it sounds like the bottom line is we shouldn't throw out the placebo response, but use it in a therapeutic way. I'll tell you, if we had any other drug in the pharmacopoeia that worked for as many things as placebos do with the kind of favorable side effect profile they do, we would all be absolutely obligated to use it. So while it is nonspecific, it works. It particularly works for pain, but it works for lots of other problems too. So Anything we got that works, we ought to wisely use. It particularly works for pain, but it works for lots of other problems, too. So anything we got that works, we ought to wisely use. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. You're most welcome. We've been speaking with Dr. David Spiegel, the Associate Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Stanford University School of Medicine, about the science behind the placebo response. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Neurology and Psychiatry. For downloadable podcasts of all the programs in this series, go to reachmd.com and choose the series Focus on Neurology and Psychiatry.